0: Ba 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 da ba bum. Sound. Tony Duchesne here. Welcome to episode 133 of Drinks with Tony. My guest is Jason Novak, whose books include Etou Brute and Baseball Epic. His latest project is illustrating a book called Ascent by Joe Frank. You know, right before pandemic, I was in New York City and I was on the set of the TV show Madam Secretary as they shot their last episode. I got to shadow Eric Stoltz, and he was doing while he was prepping and directing. And the point of the story here is, I was at lunch with him and the producers and crew as we were doing a location scout, and the executive producer was sitting across the table from me, and I, I'd been friendly with him during the week, and he asked me, "So Tony, what's your story?" See, in Hollywood, everyone everyone's always talking about how to pitch themselves. Pitch their work. Pitch what you do. What's your elevator pitch? Essentially it feels it feels just so inauthentic and gross that I shy really far away from it. So when he asked, Tony, what's your story? I choked on my lobster bisque and I looked at Eric. I was like, seriously? I didn't say anything, and then Eric said, Tony and I worked on a movie together. And then we talked about that for a little bit during lunch. What I didn't realize was I was wrong (laughs) in that situation because it is an important question. What's your story? I'm not going to, I'm not going to like have an elevator pitch ready. And if I see Cameron Crowe checking if avocados are right back Gelson's, I'm not going to go up to him and go, well, Hey, I want to tell you my origin story. That would be being a whore. But during COVID I've had a lot of time to just, We all have had a lot of time to think about things and probably way too much time to think about things. But one of the things one of the things I've been thinking about is that I shouldn't have acted like a douche. When uh, that guy asked me and we were already friendly, we'd been hanging out for the week and he just said, Tony, what's your story? It's a it's it's a it's a valid question and I could have answered it in an elegant way like Eric did for me. And poor Eric was probably rolling his eyes in the back of his head thinking, Tony, this isn't one of the bad ones. Get up to speed, fella. Regret. We've all had a long time to look back at regret. And hopefully we're changing our patterns. I'm trying to change mine. I got to say, when I hear any writer or producer doing a panel discussion and talking about the importance of the elevator pitch, I still want to puke my guts out. But we all have our stories. And they're not elevator pitches. They're what people want to hear. They want to understand. We want to understand each other. They don't have to be fancy. They can be as simple as, I'm from a suburb of San Francisco. And that tells a story right there. When I add that I grew up in the suburb in the 1980s, if anyone's familiar with it, they'll know it was probably dreary. It was before the dot-com era. And it, there, there's a story there. There's It's like, ah... That, that, that's what you are. <laughs> and they're right. And there's, okay, smash cut. There's a wonderful scene in that movie Swingers where John Favreau goes up to the girl at the party and he finally gets the courage to say hi. And he says, hi. And she just looks at him and says, what do you drive? And then she ignores him because he has a Chevy Cavalier. But that Chevy Cavalier has a story to tell about his journey in life. I'm 51 and I drive a Honda Accord. With 200,000 miles on it that's a story there why do i make the choice to drive that car when i can afford a newer car what's important to me in life just that there's that decision i make on what car i drive kind of tells a story what i've learned is if someone asks me what's your story especially on like on a lunch with a crew for a tv show they're not asking for a pitch they're not stuck in a product they've been stuck they 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 have been stuck in a production van with you and you just happen to sit across the table from them and they actually they want to know they want to start up a conversation so i could have told them i worked on a movie with eric and i grew up in san francisco that would have been elegant <laughs> it's a and it's like, but then we go back to the terrible question like you get on job interviews where so they say so tell us about yourself but in the job interview that's kind of a um That's a negotiation already, you're asking them for something. I want a steady paycheck and an employer, so of course I'm going to tell myself about you, about me, and how I fit into you. That feels a little more douchey. Growing up in a dreary suburb of San Francisco in the 1980s in a working class family kind of tells a story right there of why I would choke on lobster bisque at a restaurant in upstate New York when an executive producer asked me the question, what's your story? I got issues. I still have my own issues to deal with. And and, on, uh, and it's all about like how I grew up, where I grew up. And to not assume people are asking me for anything more or wanting to give me anything, they just really don't want to know, what's your story? It's okay. Now there's this guy, Jason Novak. Let me tell you, he's got some stories.
1: Hi, I'm Jason Novak, and you're listening to Drinks With Tony. And
0: I'm the Drinks With Tony Show you're listening to drinks with tony i'm your host tony Duchesne. today on the show we have jason novak he's the illustrator of the new book by joe frank entitled ascent jason how are you good how are you i'm all right how did you hook up with joe frank i love that guy
1: through the uh, mysterious alchemy of email
0: yeah he
1: was uh he he was ill already when I contacted him. And, uh, you know, I, I had I grew up on his shows. And uh, it was always at the back of my mind, especially as my cartooning career picked up that maybe he was someone I'd want to try and work with. Uh, and I felt like it, when I realized the situation he was in, I felt like I needed to act immediately. And luckily, he was receptive to it.
0: So. It took him being ill before you got in touch with him.
1: Yeah. I now, i thinking back on it. I regret that I, you know, this is the sort of thing if an idea pops into your head and there's no, the only consequence is that someone will say, no, uh, try it out anyway.
0: I, yeah, exactly. Cause I, there's gotta be some regret there. Cause it would almost, here's my, here's what I would do in that situation. I would almost rather him say no and go, Oh, good. Whew. Glad I didn't ask him earlier. But then when he says yes, you know, this is to me in like other areas of my life. Then it's just like, oh crap! I could have asked him five years ago, and he probably would have said yes. <laughs> this is what goes through my head.
1: It's possible that uh, he he might have softened to this kind of project precisely because of the situation he was in. Yeah, uh, I know he he famously was very um, demanding of the people that he worked with in performing.
0: Uh huh.
1: So, so um, yeah his wife uh, michael has told me that uh it it, it was a double-edged situation that um, a lot of the book uh was post posthumous for him she said that we'd probably still be uh working on the beginning preliminaries if he was involved
0: so, so interesting because um, like when you listen to his old show i mean i'm i've listened to almost every you know i have the whole archive i'm just i'm a nutter on his stuff um it seemed so off the cuff and some of it was really yeah. off the cuff.
1: Right. Yeah. And so, and you wouldn't, you didn't necessarily know. And he was good at hiding whether or not it was improvised.
0: Yeah. Do you remember the show where he called up his ex-girlfriends um, and was yes. just, and was and sang to them?
1: Uh, yes. I, and I remember that was probably one of the earliest ones I heard. And it's the kind of thing you don't forget.
0: Yeah. And, I, was, and, I was almost crying. He's just, she's like, I then the last girl's like, was I the only girl you called? And he goes, yeah.
1: <laughs> well, the, the, the funny thing, I was definitely a, a kid, like maybe even prepubescent. So uh, it, it was, I kind of lacked some of that, the self-consciousness that you might have. If I think about now calling some ex-girlfriends, it's mortifying. But um, I, back then I, I probably heard it as, well, yeah, he's calling his friends. So that's just what you do, right? I'm 10. So
0: did you grow up in Los Angeles or where did you hear him out of?
1: Well, I grew up in uh, Concord, which is uh, sort of, you know close enough that we picked up the signal from KPFA in Berkeley.
0: Oh, he was on KPFA. I grew yeah. up in Milbray, so
1: oh okay, yeah.
0: Yeah. I used to go to the Concord Pavilion when I was, uh, you know in my early days. I remember seeing Oingo Boingo there, Greg Kin band. Who else did I see? Yeah, Conquer Pavilion was like the place. It, it was the it was the big trek trip for us.
1: Well, the funny thing the first show I ever went to there was actually Prairie Home Companion.
0: Oh, wow.
1: <laughs> so how, how a little foreshadowing there. I was in high school definitely about the uncoolest thing you could do as a teenager.
0: (laughs) But the coolest thing you could do in your thirties, see, you were way ahead of me because I didn't know who Joe Frank was until I was about 28, 29. And then I started to get all the old tapes and hear all this old stuff and friends made CD, um, you know, back when we burned CDs. So I listened to the shows on CD and that's uh, I didn't even know he was on KPFA. I just knew that he was on KCRW in LA.
1: So. Yeah, the, he, I know there were just affiliates around the here and there throughout the country that would pick him up, and I yeah. don't know how he negotiated that, or if he was even involved, or people—it was just word of mouth. But um, I, I mean, what a blessing, or I, I, or maybe a curse—I don't know. I was a young, impressionable kid flipping around the dial out of boredom in the evening. My mom worked in San Francisco, so I was at home alone a lot, and uh, it, I just one night I found this voice, and it didn't—it sounded like something was suddenly wrong with the radio. Cause it was not, it was not a radio. It was not like anything I'd ever heard before.
0: Uh, that and, uh, happened,
1: instant addiction.
0: Yeah. That happened to me when I was, I in
1: think case. that's a lot of people. I think a lot of people. Oh, go ahead. Yeah.
0: Oh, that was the end of your sentence.
1: Oh, I think that's what happened to a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. That was the, well, just the, a lot of people ended up fan of him. You either, you either get it right away. Um, it, it, it just hits something some part of your core just responds to it viscerally or people kind of scrunch their nose at it and they're like what I exactly
0: did, <laughs> you, I, uh, did you ever get to meet him and talk to him in person or was this all I,
1: no it was all through email unfortunately so um yeah. in some but as i as you know i I'd, at some point after this project got rolling, I became kind of an obsessive piecing together a picture of him. You know, when I was younger, uh, the, uh, you know, when, when the World Wide Web was still kind of a new idea, there was a, there were like some cryptic nuggets of information about him bouncing around on the Internet. And it, in a way, it just made him more mysterious. But now we, we, we've all been just so completely saturated with it that uh, the, you can eliminate almost all of the mystery so i've i've gotten to know him pretty well in absentia at this point through the internet
0: yeah and he lives on
1: yes for sure
0: did um did i saw him live once he would he would he went he came to san francisco to the great american music hall and played two nights and they sold out almost instantly and i got tickets for one of the nights did you ever see him like do his read live and do his stories live
1: just the YouTube clips. Um, oh, okay. I remember. I remember when he came to San Francisco, and I think it was at the back of my head. Oh, maybe this is something I should look into or try to go to. And as again, this is one of those situations where I should have just pushed myself.
0: I oh, didn't go. It sounds no. like
1: it would have been difficult to get in anyway.
0: It was well. I had two tickets, and I was married at the time to someone who wasn't really uh, didn't even give a crap, right? <laughs> so I should have taken you. I, I wish we. I wish we had known each other because then you could have come with me and they would have been two appreciative fellas just. <laughs> I in think the night.
1: a lot of partners are kind of left sort of dumbfounded by, it. I think this is a classic <laughs> ex- Joe Frank fan experience. <laughs>
0: but that, you know, it's, I should have divorced her that night. I mean, that's, that's a telling thing, right? If, if you, if, if you can't get into this, it's just not going to work out. You know, here's half of my money. Talk to you later what <laughs> um what got you so really yeah the, oh, go ahead what were you saying
1: well i was just going to say that you know the the reason i had the audacity to even suggest doing this with him uh was that uh the you know he had a book of stories that came out in 93 uh that it, it seemed to get this place is good reviews, but it didn't sell that well. And the negative reviews all kind of said, well, you really have to hear his voice and you need the music loops to fully appreciate a Joe Frank story. And I thought, well, if his stuff is ever going to exist on the page, maybe it needs something to help give it the space and the atmosphere that radio provides you as a listener. Um, and so it just seemed like the only the, the best feasible way to do that was with cartoons, with some kind of illustration. Um, so that I, that was kind of my that was going to be my fallback argument if I felt like I needed to advocate for it.
0: But but, um, but so so your first when did he say yes? How fast did he say yes when you reached out to him?
1: Well, the he uh, the first thing I did was I, there was a tiny little vignette he posted online. It was probably just like twelve lines or something like that, and I right away. That's when when you do short comics and cartoons. 12 lines is perfect. You've got right there, you have one um, piece that you can send around. And so I thought that, yeah, I can do this. I, I, I understand this, the logic of a, of a piece that short very easily becomes a comic strip. And so I suggested we do that. Um, and uh, it got published in the, uh, the Paris Review website. And uh, at that point, he sent me a manuscript. He says, well, it, as, as it happens, I have a whole collection of these um, so uh, I was looking through that when, unfortunately, he went to the hospital for the last time. And uh, when he died, I kind of just stepped back and let his, let his family need, do what they needed to do. Um, uh, when his uh, wife came back to me a little bit later to say, I'm ready to look at this project again, the original idea had been that I would just illustrate the stories like uh, an illustrated book. So there maybe there'd be a picture here and there, but it wouldn't be picture heavy. Um, but uh, there was, she didn't have an agent. I, I certainly didn't know anyone, not like an industry insider. So uh, I became Joe Frank's agent going to every publishing place I could think of and where I kind of knew someone. And it, at the end of the day, it ended up being Fantagraphics. So I knew I it had to be a comic book. And so suddenly I was I had the task of pulling out about 10% of the, the full manuscript. So at the end of the day, this is actually just a small fraction of the stuff that he wanted to see published. But it's probably for the best. Because the comics, um, like I said, give it that kind of environment and space that you that comes the closest I can think of to the atmosphere of radio. If it had just been text here and there, it might not have been quite as um, immersive.
0: Yeah. Does that mean there's more project to this in the future?
1: It, uh, it might depend on how well this book does.
0: <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, and what, what other... I don't what...
1: know. It's a very hard read. I know even Gary... Go ahead. Gary Groth at Fantagraphics was himself a little unsure about the prospects of this book. He said that, you know, Joe Frank has 10 fans. The problem with them is that they are uh, fringe, like dark corner personalities. And it's, I I have found a lot of Joe Frank fans, but um, it wasn't easy. And (laughs) so gathering them together in one place where you can say, Here's something you might be interested. In. That's not gonna. They, they're not like. They're not easy to herd. <laughs>
0: yeah, that's Joe interesting. Frank fans. It's such a. It's so intriguing because I remember when the Joe. Well, I remember the Joe Frank, two shows in San Francisco were announced, and then there was no advertising, and it immediately sold out. And it was. Um, I think it's there, and if, if yeah, it, it, it might be interesting how this book does when all of a sudden you know, maybe three months from now, it kind of gets into the zeitgeist and then they will be like, Oh crap. Second print run. (laughs) You know,
1: (laughs) that's what I'm hoping for. (laughs) Yeah.
0: We we, we want the publishers to be like, Oh crap, send it to the presses. We got to go again.
1: (laughs) So yeah, in the meantime, it's just kind of, um, uh, you know, the promotion, which, you know, for a, a creator is not always easy. And there's a, especially when it's your own work, that's the hardest because then you, there's some guilt involved or just like you're embarrassed that you, you kind of feel like this huckster, like selling wares out of the back of your car or whatever. I mean, but it, I, it helps having, um, a collaborator because at least then you can think of it as advocating for the other guy. Uh, it's not just a purely selfish you know,
0: it, it the you know the promotion process just it sucks beyond belief. It's, <laughs> I, I wish everyone could just find stuff and go. Oh, this is intelligent and intriguing. Go ahead.
1: I managed to avoid Twitter for years and years, and I started an account in December. Uh, and uh, I, I knew I've just. It's. I think of it as the sort of place where you get chewed up and spit out. Um, but I, early on in this experiment with Twitter, I encountered uh, another writer who uh, is just shamelessly posting a link to his book on every tweet that goes viral that's, in an attempt to sell it. And it, in a weird way, it gave me the courage. I thought, if this guy can humiliate himself publicly so consistently, then why can't I?
0: <laughs> well, that's great news because this airs uh, this week on Wednesday and i'm going to tag you then in the twitter so okay, there'll be great. a tag coming your way <laughs> in the in the social media stuff you know people people like you know there's so much bull you know bowl on there but um but i think like people will try to like engage with you in a i'm going to attack you kind of way and just right. i what i always do is pull back and go oh yeah you might be right you know just and it just just de-escalate everything, and then they realize, oh, this isn't this isn't what I wanted out of this, <laughs> and I actually have empathy for the guy. Crap, you know. So.
1: Yeah, I you know I actually that is kind of my own strategy. Part of that has to do with um, being so indecisive, uh, and so I can walk into a room with a strong opinion and be talked out of it very quickly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but when it comes to illustrations, I'm sure you're. I'm sure you, you'll fight. You'll, you'll, yeah, you'll fight I mean, like, yeah, go ahead.
1: Instincts take over at that point. Yeah. And, you know, the, and, and luck in my case, the it, the way it manifests is if something isn't going to work, my body will just shut down and I won't be able to draw at all. So it's uh, my better nature, my subconscious taking over at that point.
0: And how do you, how do you keep your subconscious? How, how do you tap the subconscious when you're working on your illustrations?
1: Uh, I try to I try to let things just kind of happen and unfold. There's not very much planning that goes into stuff, um, and but it's great with, if I'm you know, and I do frequently collaborate. Um, so it wasn't completely it wasn't a totally new experience to work with Joe's material, um, but uh, even even so, with the script, I can kind of um, I don't know how the page is going to look, but I'll just start. Uh, and I've kind of come up with this weird sort of geometric strategy for doing the pages where I work on very small pieces of paper and then kind of lace them together to build a comic page. Um, And so that what that does is it gives me the freedom to just create as many images as I need to and then figure out how they fit. Uh, So it's very it is it's almost like working with collage. But instead of cutting things out, it's my own work. So it's yeah, but it isn't. It's definitely intuitive. I don't I don't even necessarily know what's going to be in that panel when I lay the pen down
0: and how how large are the pieces of paper when you're when you how they're uh,
1: they're post notes uh three by three three inches by three inches
0: so you're working uh, with with, a great go ahead
1: yeah uh flare pens on uh, yellow paper uh that with glue on the back
0: <laughs> and, and so um it does when you're working on something that that's is that small does it feel like I mean, this, I mean, for me, or I'll, I'll, I'll explain me. <laughs> maybe this question, maybe this question will sound half intelligent, but <laughs> for me, I, I need to write, I need to reuse my, I have my pens, which is this pen that I use for writing all the time and my legal pad. And that's, it has to be that all first drafts have to be that because it keeps the preciousness out of the situation. It, it's, You know, people try to give me these nice pens, these beautiful journals, I can't write in that. Because then I then I'm like, I have to produce something that's brilliant. But if I have tons of legal pads and tons of pens, the preciousness goes away, and I can tap what I need to tap to write, which most of it is crap. But but in your scenario, is it kind of the same when you just have your post-it note?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. So one of the things you know that I came into art and cartooning very obliquely. It was not something that I thought about as a kid. I really I was kind of ignorant about art and uh, into my early adulthood, really I had no point of reference, and I was never really into comics as a kid. Um, so what one thing when I start, when I finally did start exploring comics, uh, this this has happened. I've I've heard in interviews. Um, people who do it the way I do it they don't get the proper grounding so they're not taught what the correct kind of paper is or the fact that a lot of cartooning you start with underdrawing which is pencil that then is erased away after you ink everything I didn't know any of that so I just started drawing on like typing paper Uh, I I just I thought when I would look at a page of comics I thought this was something that someone just sat down and drew without any like tricks and it was I mean in one way it was kind of like um, if if it was a very defeating feeling to think, how can I ever get that good? But at some point, I got over that. Um, but the but the posted notes that it is it's all about that disposability. If I make a mistake, it is no loss at all to just crumble it up and throw it across the room and start over. Um, and so, it, yeah, in a way, it, it's uh, it, it frees up. And I've had that same experience. People have given me stacks of nice paper, or the you know fountain pens with the you know, the gold plating or whatever. And it just, that I, I, they, they feel like museum pieces and they are not to be used or handled in any way. Uh, it, yeah, it's a completely um, shuts you down to use that, or at least, at least me, and it sounds like you. Uh, I like the, the cheap throwaway materials are ideal. Uh, and it, interestingly, the yellow paper, um, I've heard that it actually helps with uh, looking at the page, that it's actually good for your vision to see black on yellow versus black on white. I know that um, James Thurber used yellow legal pad paper for his cartoons. Huh. Uh, and he actually had really. So I, 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 ga- I gathered that was part of his strategy for overcoming his own limitations.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I have so many limitations. I should yeah. just be doing everything on yellow. <laughs> if I could do my whole life on yellow pad, I think <laughs> <laughs> things would clear up. <laughs> so what, When did you? when did you go, wait? you know what, I'm, I'm into illustrating. I think this is a thing.
1: Uh, well, I it, it's thanks to a relationship that was ultimately doomed. But um, while I was still trying to make it work, uh, my girlfriend at the time was going to grad. We grew up in the, in the Bay Area. She was going to grad school in Oregon. Uh, and I, I was a high school dropout. Uh, and so she kind of, I mean, she, this was kind of wise of her. She said, if you're going to follow me to another state, I want you to at least do something productive with yourself uh, and so I thought well if she's going to school I'll go to school but being a high school dropout the only thing I was really qualified to go to was art school so <laughs> to, to satisfy her criteria uh, I enrolled in art school in Oregon uh, and I kept that up for a couple semesters and I, I again like having no real understanding of what art was or how it worked or my or even really knowing what my goal was uh, it turns out the school I went to was a traditional painting school. So what I got without even expecting it was a classical education in fa- what's called foundation art, so like the the life drawing classes and color theory and stuff like that. So I it 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 ended up being really useful though even by the, I also dropped out of art school eventually um and still hadn't formulated any kind of plan. Um but I ended up in another relationship uh, with someone who went to grad school in London <laughs> and I followed her out there and uh it was and I again I didn't I had put the art down it, I thought it was just this weird encounter I'd had and I wasn't going to do anything more with it I was trying to be a writer at the time um and suddenly here I was following someone to London and I thought oh well, maybe I'll be the next T.S. Eliot some absurd junk like that um but uh it was there um, ha- not really having a plan, kind of wandering around. Uh, if, you're, if, if you have nothing to do in a place like that, you end up in pubs. So I was sitting in pubs with this writing material. And at some point I hit a wall with it. I just, writing just didn't feel right anymore. And so I started drawing cartoons. And that's when I realized Something just clicked. I remember the first day I sat down and really on purpose tried to draw a cartoon. There was It was like something in my head was singing. Uh, and the next day, I put something together and sent it to private eye magazine. And at the end of the day, this was actually, they required you, you had to send it on a fax machine. This was about 15 years ago. So even then fax machines were kind of old. Um, but I remember by the end of the day, I got a fax back saying, Nope, no, thanks. We don't want this. But, um, so I discovered not only that, um, cartooning was going to be an addiction for me, but that rejection would also be an addiction because uh, (laughs) after getting that first rejection, I've been, Thirsting for more ever since from magazines.
0: I, I think um, you know if if people aren't in the uh, aren't you doing creative things with their lives? I don't think they realize how much rejection it is, how how much of a beatdown it is, even when people say yes and you're like great, <laughs> and, then you, and then it's still rejection, rejection, rejection until you get to the final.
1: Yeah, <laughs> then, it's and, I'm almost suspicious when they say yes. I think I've misheard them or they I, they they've mistaken me for someone else <laughs>
0: yeah yeah what was so, that that i love that you know because it's all storytelling everything's everything's storytelling and you were trying to get your story down as a writer and then you realized oh no i need to get my stories down as an illustrator
1: yeah uh and it the, the, what i have found more and more as time goes on though i like writing and i i certainly enjoy working with words uh i'm a very uh, visual thinker um, and in some ways I almost I, this is kind of a big debate, I know in philosophical circles, circles how much thought is driven by language, and I really feel like there's an element of my thinking that is not tethered by language. And uh, I think that language was in a way was the things that I was trying to express, language was actually just weighing it down and making it impossible. because uh, I even remember that the first day in, in London when I was in that pub drawing cartoons, they were things that uh, right away, um, would be hard to put in words. So, uh, then maybe that's why my head was singing because I finally found something that felt like a real release after trying for years to express it some other way.
0: It makes sense because even, um, even like the, the, sometimes words won't capture the story, even in music, you know, and you like, I, I just, I, I don't think like a musician, but I'm around people, you know, who are musicians. And they don't think like writers, but they can they can tell you the story by creating the music. And it's and it's just it's so beautiful to it, it. There's a beauty with words, and there's that beauty beyond the words of the connect, just connecting a story. There's not words for it, you know.
1: Right? Yeah. I know, and I, I love music. I have you know I I've all my life I've gathered many many to the bane of people around me <laughs> stacks of records and CDs and things. And uh, but it it is. when you get into that zone and and this happens to me all the time where I'm listening to a piece of music and I want so badly to somehow translate it into an image, but it it, sometimes it is impossible because music is such a specific kind of experience. Uh, and it, but it's what a wonderful one. And and certainly it was integral to to Joe Frank's work. Uh, I, I know that his shows would be so different without, music and i know that it was a major focus for him he it wasn't like random stuff that he was pulling out of the bin he really thought hard about what would work with his stories almost like film
0: yeah yeah and even the medium of film is just it's, it always blows my mind i mean well it, it, i teach screenwriting so i'm watching
1: oh okay films
0: <laughs> yeah. over and over and over again and my students go do we really have to watch jim carrey and yes man again and i'm like you idiots i've watched it 10 times for this damn lecture you have to watch it once just deal (laughs) but um but yeah i mean that's 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 uh that's everything oh and just the way joe frank had those just loops all those loops were just sexy
1: yeah yeah i know that's uh one thing you know the in going through the manuscript, uh the a lot of the material that i felt like i maybe someday I could try and tackle, but I did, for this project, I knew I just wasn't up to it, it was the really intense, um, the, the relationship stuff, the sexual stuff. Uh, it's in a way almost too, um, too visceral uh, because I know that the, the, all of these were, all the material that was in the manuscript he sent me were in some way adapted from his shows uh, but for some of those more intense performances, I, I know so much of it hinged on the delivery of the actors he had working with him and uh, stuff that like the, you know, rent a family, another classic uh, where um, I, I'm trying to remember her name. The ex-wife is pleading frantically on the phone for her ex-husband, Arthur. And it's just the, the insane depravity in her voice. It just, it is so chilling. I'm getting goosebumps just, remembering in that episode uh and i don't know how on earth i could ever begin to try and turn that into a comic but uh I, who knows maybe down the road
0: <laughs> yeah so I the mean...
1: stories i focused on were mostly. What? oh sorry the stories i focused on were mostly narration uh cold narration no no dialogue
0: yeah
1: almost like silent yeah silent films
0: yeah when, so when you're in that pub and you do and you draw and you realize, all right, this is, this is who I am in life. That's almost like, that's probably the realization, right?
1: It had to have been, yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> then
1: it, it's clear, it, it's clear it's in retrospect.
0: Yeah. What was, what was the first um, time that you were published? When did you get your first yes?
1: So that my first, very first yes was for a website based in San Francisco called The Rumpus.
0: Oh, yeah. I used yeah. to write for them.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's the, you know, and, and this was probably 2010. Uh huh. And at that point, it really felt like there was a real community gathering around it. And I, I, you know, a lot of the people that were contributing were Bay Area people, and they would have gatherings. The irony, of course, is that at the time I was actually living in Albuquerque. So I didn't get to meet anyone, Uh, but I just, it felt like home because this is where I grew up. Um, But the, but that was all pro bono. Uh, And I, I was doing, I was illustrating essays that they were publishing. It was great practice because at that point I still didn't have a real plan, but suddenly I found myself having to create images out of people's essays. And uh, that was, I think, probably the best way to start out, even though it was unpaid. Because the next thing that happened was uh, a paid gig from the Poetry Foundation. And uh, that I knew whatever I did, I knew it was going to have a literary quality to it. I didn't go to the comic book publishers until much later.
0: Then, um, yeah, I wrote pro bono for the rumpus, too. And then, <laughs> and then when you do the rumpus readings, they're all pro bono. But they charge, like, <laughs> I, they used to do them at the makeup room. It was a $10 cover charge. And, yeah. and, I, and i gotta say say I'll, I'll it blows my mind this used to blow my mind and piss me off so much because whenever i put a reading together all the writers were paid every single time and all these readings i did where there was a ten dollar cover charge and you're not getting any of the money just i felt like a whore i felt like a dirty whore <laughs> to the rumpus that's and,
1: that was uh, that was one of their themes though (laughs) i feel like that was that was actually a whole genre for them
0: (laughs) true true yeah that's funny um before i got off on that tangent there then um yeah but at the same time the you know the rumpus put a lot of eyes on me i could put oh yeah you know this was the rumpus published this and they'd be like oh my god that's huge and and i'd just be like no you don't know how huge it is it's it's not <laughs> but, but yeah they had, they uh, had a jam it, well I,
1: I mean but I, I remember yeah roxanne gay started there uh sugar um help me with her real name i think of her cheryl strade thank you yes. yeah yeah um i mean the, and it seemed like I, though I mean a lot of the people that were writing for the rumpus had careers behind them that had gone for you know years sometimes decades the rumpus seemed to be the catalyst that really launched them into stardom
0: yeah
1: and and I, and I, what I noticed was that there would even seem to be this trend where the rumpus was the jumping point to the to the legacy media suddenly people were in The New Yorker or whatever um, and the, the the thing about uh, the rumpus though is what the way I found it was that the stuff I was interested in, just happened to, every time I would Google something, I, there would be a rumpus article about it. And so I just knew that was where I wanted to be at that time.
0: Yeah, did, did you, uh, did you get published in the New Yorker? Was, did I read that? Yeah, yeah.
1: that's right, yeah. In fact, the, so the first, I, it, I think I actually did the first online exclusive comic there. They'd published comics in the magazine itself for years and years, but um, they, I know they were very slow to really integrate the internet into the New Yorker phenomenon. For a long time, they really dug their heels in. They wanted to be, they had this image that they were trying to protect. Um, and at some point, they, I mean, the dam must've broke. This was, this was 2013. And again, I was working with a co-writer. It was uh, Mike Duncan who hosts the Revolutions podcast, uh, who he's a big baseball fan. Uh, And it was the beginning of baseball season. So I just I he had this thing, this it was kind of just like an idea. And it quickly turned into a comic and the New Yorker had been on my roster of people who reject me. So I sent it to them. And suddenly they were ready to publish this thing online. And I remember the reason I think it was the first is because I haven't seen anything older than it. And they uh, sent when they sent the contract to us, um, someone had actually gone in with a ballpoint and scratched out the normal terms and drawn in the new online template basically uh so um that was my start at the new yorker uh I, I, I published a couple other cartoons online and then there was one issue of the magazine where i got the spot illustrations which is you know the little narrative the little cartouches of narrative pictures that are throughout the magazine yeah uh, and that was and that was kind of the high point and at that point i just you know, the, one of the things about, especially comics, if you have pictures and words, uh, at the, the New Yorker has a, there's like a whole, there are like level boss editors. Because once you get the art approved, then someone else who does the words has to approve that. And then there's some other... Higher editor who has to approve the whole thing and so what i found a lot of times was i'd get through one hoop and then crash and burn before the next one and at some point i thought i'm just killing myself trying to do this and it's and again you know it, it, it's prestigious to get your name in there but at the same time it doesn't actually translate into um champagne dinners
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah true that's um so yeah you did the uh you did the little um drawings that are just that it's the story through the magazine right
1: Right. And mine happened to be baseball players.
0: Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> what, I, and I, what was it like buying that issue? Did you go buy that issue when it came out?
1: Yeah, that was actually agony because uh, there's quite a bit. Of, usually there's quite a bit of lead time, you know, way ahead of schedule that it's going to be in an upcoming issue. And I think in my case, it was probably like six months out so that i was just you know that was blistering <laughs> to be i like be basically the the bookstores in the area were getting tired of seeing me just go in and look at the magazine rack every day
0: <laughs> did they tell you what issue it was going to be in or you just yeah knew i knew oh, okay. I just,
1: the, the thing is with distribution and the way the, the these mag the way magazines end up on racks it's, there's not like a it's not very coordinated yeah. and so i and but i didn't want to you know I, you do get contributor copies copies but the that's not as satisfying as being able to like walk into a bookstore and go, Oh, Oh, what's this? Oh, uh, Oh, Oh, look, I happen to be in here, you know?
0: So you, so did you, so when you got the magazine at the bookstore, how yeah. shamelessly self-promoting were you when you went and bought and bought oh, it from I,
1: the- I actually really embarrassed about that. Stuff. <laughs> I, I, I bought a couple issues, but I did not, I didn't want them to know why I was doing it. Really? <laughs> I was actually a little bit embarrassed. Yeah, I you just, I mean, I, it's weird. It's like a, there's, I had my moment, but the, there's a, I, I, on some level, I'm, I'm too self-conscious. You know, there, there's the part of that there's the egomaniac inside that I try to keep in the jar because it's not a, necessarily pretty. Uh, so, you know, on the one hand, I wanted the glory of being able to walk into the bookstore and see this thing. But on the other hand, I didn't want to seem shameless. So I was like, <laughs> I'm working on two ends. And again, that's another part of the submission process that's very exhausting is when you get accepted and then the, the all the, the the tortured psychology leading up to publication
0: <laughs> when, why was so, um, when, and then the, go ahead I'm sorry.
1: Oh, and then everything that happens after publication, which includes, I mean, like, there's a certain sort of expectation you have about the kind of impact you think your work might make on the world. And most of the time, I mean, this is true for 99.8% of the creative population. Uh, No one's really (laughs) looking. So it's, you 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 always, again, you know, when you're a kid, especially you think about like, books seem like these holy things that have, they're just like filled with them. gravity and they, they, it just seems like the people who make books are just these uh they're these titans especially where i the, the kind of childhood i had um in you know concord at the time was kind of a working class place it wasn't like i was jumping from literary salon to salon you know it was just like they i, I was just kids on the schoolyard beating each other up There there's if i if i'd said i liked poetry i would have gotten beaten up again you know so it was really uh to to but to get to a place where you kind of see the internal workings and you also realize as an adult that, you know, people are too busy just trying to live their lives to, to stop and rubberneck something like a literary magazine. That's the only people who read literary magazines are people who are trying to get into them.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It's, I mean, the New Yorker is a sexy one to put on your bio though, published in the New Yorker. I mean, I, I would have had that, the, the minute I would have signed the contract, all of my web presence and everything would have said New Yorker. <laughs> they would have thought that they would have thought I got a job at the New Yorker. and it just... Yeah.
1: It's, it's up and down for me. Sometimes I think it's an asset. Sometimes I think it's a liability. Um, and, you know, the certain, in a way, especially some uh, somewhere like that, where they, there's a, there's a look they try to cultivate. So um, they really want people who are going to re- enhance their brand basically. So you can kind of be pigeon- pigeonholed, and I, I, I see that happen, not just there, but in, in any place where they have kind of a house look and, um, obviously the paycheck is very enticing, uh, but it, you, you kind of get locked in after a while and, and you're not growing anymore. You're just, you've come, you've become a, uh, a, a company person in a way.
0: So, so what do you, what do you do about that to get out of that mold?
1: Uh, well, at this point, I don't submit really anything to magazines or newspapers anymore. I mean, part of that has to do with the fact that uh, that media landscape is really in turmoil now. Uh, it was never very gainful. Um, I, I don't, there was never a year where I didn't have to also have a full-time job. But I, now it is, it is really bad. And I don't, it, I, I don't have numbers. Um, but I know, you know, obviously, I have a lot of colleagues and cohorts, so to speak, in that industry. And no one's having a good time. It is a real grind right now. I know that, you know, the New Yorker in, in particular, they, they've unionized, the staff has unionized and uh, that right now they're going through heated um, negotiations. It's no one feels safe, safe or secure. It's really bad. Uh, so the, I'm, at this point I've resigned myself to my day job and I'm just thinking about the books. Because those, and at the end of the day, those are the things that really matter, anyway. Those are the ones that are not going to fall apart after a couple of years, you know. Exactly. Uh, so that's that's where it's.
0: Wait, what's your day job?
1: Uh, I work at a grocery store.
0: Oh, what do you do?
1: Well, um, in the morning, early morning, because it's the it's the opening shift. So I get there around four o'clock in the morning, and uh, the first thing I do is unload trucks. I operate the forklift. Well, wow, cool. Uh, and then uh, once the store is open, I jump into a hybrid job where the first four hours I'm wrecking my body, and then the second four hours I'm just exhaustedly trying to paint signs. <laughs> oh,
0: oh it, it, you it, it is you work at
1: You know, that, that instinct to... I do, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, the, the, no, the, 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 the illustrators... People. The illustrators at Trader Joe's are fantastic.
1: A lot of them, are kind of in the same boat as me. You know, uh, the there's one there's a guy I work with at my store that uh, he's in the middle of producing a an a cartoon, an animated cartoon uh, that's really good. It's like it's it seems like it's ready for Adult Swim, uh, but um, it's not that unusual. It seems like in a way that 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 department at these stores has become a haven for people who maybe 10 years ago would have in a in a healthier publishing environment would would have already you know been on their way to a career so yeah we're on the raft together
0: <laughs> yeah you know, i gotta tell you i mean i i the trader joe's i go to is in silver lake in los angeles and they okay. always straight i mean all, almost everyone knows who the illustrator is I can't remember his name but he, I, I'm, I'm following him on Instagram because the guy's fantastic and um, and, and, it, and he just has this theme and they, they just it, I, it's so cool and I almost feel like those Trader Joe's I mean those are in your face and they're and they're creative they let you be creative a bit
1: It's probably my biggest audience at yeah. this point <laughs> I think more people see the signs I make just shopping at one store than anyone ever did at any magazine or newspaper I was ever published in.
0: Trader Joe's illustrators are the new New Yorker comics.
1: (laughs) Don't let it get out too much. What do you mean? <laughs> well, yeah, this, this uh, space is limited.
0: <laughs> oh, right, right.
1: Soon, there'll be an army of creatives are going to start <laughs> ransacking the Trader Joe's.
0: <laughs> oh my God! If if uh, if if the uh, drawings at Trader Joe's went freelance instead of uh, <laughs> instead of in house. <laughs>
1: I mean, if there was way, if there was a way of measuring how many units each of those signs is moving, and I could get a commission, that would be something.
0: How many how many signs do you have to create a week? Is there like do they have a certain amount where they're expecting um, output?
1: The other is kind of a boilerplate description where like X number of minutes for a certain sized sign, um, and then obviously you can spend more time on the billboards, and we have you know a full range of uh, different color paints markers and things like that to work on a large scale. Um, I happen to I, I, I like to do a lot of 3D stuff so'll when we're breaking palettes down in the morning I'll grab all the empty boxes and paint them to look like giant versions of the products, stuff like that. But uh, the, the, where I really what, where I really thrive in that role is with uh, the small little shelf signs because they're basically like comics panels and so the store is full in a way it's almost like a a giant um comics miscellany unfortunately it's all proprietary so i can't take it to a publisher
0: (laughs) but you can um i mean do you take photos of all your work
1: i do yeah and and blast them on twitter or whatever
0: do you do you have an instagram account i can follow you you have i want you to publish them on instagram just for me i
1: do actually yeah
0: okay (laughs) What's your, what's your instagram account
1: yeah I, I do have an instagram account uh one word commercial failure
0: <laughs> that's brilliant uh, that's a, that's a good one uh you're gonna have a new follower right after we're done recording <laughs> hopefully a few right more on. <laughs> but uh, yeah it's, there's there's a beauty to that it's just We're in such weird times. Publishing just tanks. I mean, I used to write for the San Francisco Chronicle and I did my last article for them in 2015. And those last few years, you know, I I was freelancing, but I was writing six articles a month for them. And those last few years, I'm like, this is just depressing. I want out of this. I want out. I want out. And then finally, they had a really crappy managing editor. who was just a terrible person that I got bumped up to because my uh, last editor got laid off. And I was just like, "You're a complete piece of crapola." I'm out, and I want to tell you why you're a piece of crapola. <laughs> and then um, he ended up. I, I got to tell him through email and trying to call him. He was avoiding my calls because he did the stupid. He, he was a nut. Anyway, so I I couldn't wait to go up there and tell him to his face because I was living in L.A. at the time. I'm like, next time I'm up there, I cannot wait to see this guy. I'm, I'm scheduling a meeting with him, and I, we're going to hash it out. He died. Oh, no. And I was like, oh, opportunity <laughs> lost.
1: <laughs> I've, I've done one cartoon for the Chronicle, and uh, I can't believe this. Uh, it was, I don't even actually remember what it was about. I just know that in one panel, there is a toilet in the background there's nothing in it it's just a toilet the only point of there being a toilet there is that there's a toilet it's not gross or anything and they made me take it out they said it was inappropriate a toilet <laughs>
0: so but but you put a really phallic looking uh, symbol in another I room. should
1: have I at that point I think I just wanted the job to be over yeah so i just you know that's how they get you they first they the, the again that exhaustion of jumping through the hoops so by the time you're there you're just at that point it's like you're just wearing your knuckles uh but um that one yeah that 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 told me don't go there again
0: (laughs) yeah well what was funny with this one editor who died so that you know they have to do a profile on it you know the profile obligatory profile obituary for the managing editor right and all the people can say about it and all they had in there was he had a cat and he enjoyed the arts was nothing else. Or no, he he contributed to the arts. And I'm like I'm like, it says it all right there, what a kind of human he was. (laughs) You know, you read between the lines on those things. It's like that's that's all you can get out of the thing? All right. But he could have just waited a little longer because I wanted to chew him out in person, you know?
1: (laughs) He could sense it. (laughs)
0: I hope so I should I should like I should go to a seance and just be like call up the managing editor of the chronicle that died here
1: well I I I had a similar experience maybe you maybe you were involved with them too the Bay Citizen
0: oh no but I I know who they are but I never worked with them Uh,
1: the and the you know the 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 guy who started it was the hardly strictly bluegrass guy okay and and when he died uh the ownership of the Bay Citizen went to his next of kin and they wanted nothing to do with it so that was the end of that but for a couple of years the Bay Citizen they were I mean they, they were an insert in the New York Times I was getting regular gigs from the Bay Citizen like like assignments they I wasn't I didn't even have to do any thinking they'd say go to this event and draw it wow. and, uh, yeah it was really that was so fantastic and so I I wanted that guy to stay alive yeah <laughs> but he he, <laughs> he didn't so and
0: that is so cool. And then and I, I mean the New York Times back. I used to get the New York Times religiously on Sundays until about 5 years ago and it just kept kept getting smaller and smaller and
1: smaller. Yeah. Yeah, I don't I think at some point they they got rid of the insert because they, even that was like too costly. Having hiring some guy to throw that in the middle of the paper was too much yeah. of an investment. <laughs>
0: The, the paper boys. I I used to do. I used to. I used to do the uh, San Francisco Examiner. Um, I was, you know, when I was about eleven years old, I had a paper out. and um, you know, back in those days, the papers were heavy because it, it was a lot I of the,
1: When I was a kid, yeah, getting the but the Sunday Examiner, was like you could stop bullets with it. It was so big.
0: Yeah, yeah. Most ads. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, and then the ads for um, the, the the advertising in the Macy's catalog. That they used to have for yeah. the uh, for the lingerie, right? That, that got me through, being twelve to fifteen.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, it's I you know I, I guess I I my understanding is that all of this went away uh, because of Craigslist. That advertising was actually key to that health the health of the paper. Um, and once ad, once classifieds were something you could do online without a, without any fees. That was the end of what we think of as traditional print journalism.
0: That Craig. The beginning of the end. Do you know where Craig lives? Yeah, I know where he great. lives.
1: He's such a nice guy, too. I know he is. I don't think that was his intention, but <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, he's the biggest sweetheart in the world, but he took the whole newspaper industry down. <laughs> uh, you know, it's just, it's kind of like um, how things change. Some things just need to go away and new things come up. and
1: yeah, I've finally I've gotten to a point where I just make my peace with these things. So like I said, you know, the the I, I don't I don't I don't I don't um, further my heartache anymore in trying to pursue that kind of career. And now it's really just the books, which I already I, you know built into it is the understanding that these these aren't necessarily going to ever sell. Um, my interests aren't the kind that are blockbuster interests. I'm never going to do a cat book, so I just have to make my peace with knowing that a few copies get out there and really my personal goal is to just try and fill up one shelf at home of my own stuff and if i can do that well then that i've said uh, there's this modest thing i've satisfied
0: you know i got i i had um had an author adam man Spock on the show when i was in san francisco and we did it in studio probably around 2008 on drinks with tony and then he goes to publish Go the F to sleep. That that children's book.
1: Oh, that's right. Yeah. Okay. And awesome.
0: and then it's it's millions upon millions of copies, and that's not what he's known for. He was writing these novels that were great, and then, but then that and then that comes out of nowhere, you yeah. know. And, and I mean, his name alone is carrying Akashic books for probably the next two decades. What a great <laughs> hit they made.
1: Um, yeah. And Akashic
0: sure. does really good with her. I, uh, with their um, with their royalties, they're like they're. It's not like Akashic's taking advantage of them. He's also getting a very good fair share of it. Uh, I oh, mean, not great. not that I know personally. I just know Akashic as a publisher has a very different royalty rate than most publishers. That's um, great.
1: I, yeah. I do and know Jerry Thompson. I'm sorry. Uh, so there's a there's there's um uh, a writer editor here in Oakland named Jerry Thompson who. Sort of oversaw the uh, Oakland Noir collection. Oh,
0: that's okay. how I know
1: Akashic because of their Noir, their, the Noir City series.
0: The Noir. Uh, wait anyway, a second.
1: It's good. I'm glad to hear. I'm I got hear uh, that
0: I got Palm Springs Noir right here. I'm interviewing oh, nice. the editor of that in a few weeks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. See, I think they're going everywhere. They're going to hit every city they can.
0: They're going deep. They're going to have conquered Noir. You'll have to edit that one for them.
1: <laughs> you know, that was a dark town. Yeah, I, it, when I go back there now, it, it's it's so trans. It's turning into another Walnut Creek. But yeah. when I was a kid, um, it, it it was rough. I mean, it was steamfitter people. You know, it, it would, now. I, I I I imagine the refinery is still responsible for a lot of business. But it just it. I don't. You know, when I was a kid, maybe it was just being young too. But after those hot summers, like hundred degrees, um, no school, just walking around. I all the time I felt like I, I'm gonna get jumped any minute. I'm just ready for this. <laughs> I don't feel like that there now. I have kids. I take them to Concord sometimes, and it's, I, it's. I feel like, like I said, it's like Broadway Plaza or something. It's not, right. It's not noir anymore. But if if they if they do a noir collection for Concord, they've got to find people that were there in the 80s. <laughs> yeah, it's
0: and I remember as a kid in Millbrae that Concord was always about 10 or 15 degrees hotter. If it was yeah. a hot day if you were in Concord. It was it was the amazing.
1: Diablo Valley.
0: Yeah. did uh um oh i i see i had a question and i looked into your eyes and i got lost (laughs) for a second when you were uh when you lived in concord were you a fan of the oakland a's or the san francisco giants
1: you know i wasn't really into baseball as a kid okay um i grew i didn't know my dad growing up uh, and that's really that that's kind of that's how you get into baseball is there's a dad that's kind of you know ushering you into it. Um, and so it wasn't until I was in my 30s mm. that I started cultivating an interest in baseball. I ended up doing a whole book about it, um, an illustrated book, uh, but uh, and it's something that I take my kids to now, or at least I did before the pandemic. Um and uh it's but i had to kind of I, it was something that i wanted to get into for a long time if for no other reason because it was such a, a great way to connect with people um break ice uh and uh, so i kind of approached it as an anthropologist i i've always enjoyed going to ball games the experience of being in the bleachers and the in and the crowds and, and the excitement even if i wasn't interested in the game i just liked the phenomenon of people being there and so over time by kind of absorbing that first i finally got into a place where i can actually like sort of follow the game and really be involved and interested in that way The the book i did is a history book um but uh oh yeah, the it, dead so, ball the, the, the
0: you a's. did the dead I, ball I, book. I
1: could, that's right yeah yeah um the but uh yeah that if i had to pick a team it would be the a's and one of the things i like about them is that uh, they blow it every year which keeps the price going down
0: (laughs) yeah that used to be the thing with the giants because i was on the peninsula so the a's felt like so far away but it was the san francisco giants a candlestick and they were losing all the time and it was beautiful that you know (laughs) when, when we won in 2010 though that was one of the i mean that moment of like we were never supposed to win the world series. How did this happen? It was hilarious. The other ones weren't interesting, but that 2010 one, I was living on Gary street and the whole city just went to a shutdown when they won that, when that last game. So
1: were you in San Francisco for 89?
0: Uh, oh, was I, was in, yeah, I was living in Fremont play. for 89 when they, um, okay. when the earthquake happened. Yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah. I was actually in Sunnyvale visiting my grandparents. Pretty close to the epicenter. Yeah, I remember the the shoe store that we were in. <laughs> we were buying shoes, and the whole the whole front of the store was glass. And I just remember the entire building shaking like suddenly we were on the bed of a pickup truck or something. And my yeah. grandmother, who she, I, I, it seems like she'd been waiting her whole life for this to happen. She yelled, "Here it comes!" And she grabbed me and we <laughs> threw me to the ground like a grenade was going to go off.
0: <laughs> it was that was nuts. I was I was uh, still living. Uh, my parents had just bought a house, and I was watching the whole garage buckle, and the cars bounce up and down in the street. It was that it was surreal. Yeah. At least we weren't on um, what was that terrible uh, freeway that came down in Oakland?
1: Oh yeah, that, I think that was Eight Hundred and Eighty, the old Eight Hundred and Eighty.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that was brutal. Brutal. That was such a weird time. It was, yeah.
1: Yeah. That was the Joe Frank era.
0: <laughs> I know. <laughs> it was good fun. Jason, thanks so much for coming on the show.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Jason Novak on Drinks with Tony. Check out his new book, Illustrated. <laughs> the book he illustrated. <laughs> um, the book's called Joe Frank Ascent, and Jason Novak illustrated the book. It's fantastic. Next week on the show, we have Michael Elias He will be discussing his new book. And also, he wrote the. um, He's written a lot for uh, Steve Martin. His film credits include The Jerk, and he was the creator of the TV series Head of the Class. I bet that guy's got stories. We're going to find out next week. Thanks for listening. And if you would like to join my free writing workshop at the Los Angeles Public Library on April 14th, go to lapl.org. Search for events happening on April 14th, and you'll find out how to sign up for the 6 p.m. creative writing workshop. You don't need to have a library card. You can dial in from anywhere now that we're still on, um, on the Zooms. I'll see you next week on Drinks with Tony.